Please follow our instructions. We'll get everybody safely out of here. You don't have to worry about it. I'll try to arrange for ice cream or something when we get over to National Geographic. That's where we're heading. Um, you know, I would normally give a venue for a competitor, but Sh Sheila is one of the finest analysts and friends that I know, and we wanted to do this because of her remarkable personality. It transcends the fact that she works for the competition. Okay, I, I'm, not that I'm resentful. Uh, no, I'm really very, very proud of you, Sheila. You've written a fine book. You are a great collaborator. We work with you all the time. It's really wonderful uh, the way in which you're willing to support things and invite people in our world to come over and to participate in yours. And uh, We're here this afternoon to really learn more about this piece, this wonderful book that Sheila wrote. And Mike's going to bring all of that out in a conversation, I think, between you. So I'm, my role here is not to delay the good part of this program any longer. I do want you to welcome Sheila Smith with your applause and say thank you for coming. So welcome, Sheila. As, as you all know, um, and I think those are going to be available afterwards, Sheila's written a wonderful new book called Japan Rearmed, The Politics of Military Power, which we'll talk about over the next hour. Um, Sheila's well known uh, here in Washington and Tokyo and Asia for her expertise on Japanese um, foreign policy, politics, defense. Um, I first met Sheila in 1987, <laughs> and we were both in second grade. And, um, <laughs> Now, she was my senpai at Todai at Tokyo University in Komaba campus, and I, I met Sheila when I was registering for my classes, and I think I was holding the registration form upside down, and Sheila came up and said, Chotto, and then, ah, and, and help me out. Um, she's um, written um, a number of important uh, articles and books, including Intimate Rivals, a wonderful um, uncoupling, un uncoupling, bad choice of words, um, unbundling of the complex uh, Sino-Japanese relationship, and then this book. Um, she's uh, received her uh, MA and PhDs from Columbia University um, and has worked at uh, the East-West Center in Hawaii where she did a lot of work on base issues and base politics. She's one of the, probably the leading expert on Okinawa uh, in this town, which I may come back to. Um, the book on Japan-China relations, as I mentioned. But if you read her bio, you won't see her most significant accomplishment, which was that <laughs> Sheila, together with me, was the 1990 All Japan Japanese language international debate contest champion. <laughs> we, uh, we beat the uh, Canadians, the French, the Brits, the Italians, and then the final battle was against the Mukoksiki team, the, a team of, um, of Japanese citizens who's, who had grown up Japanese, but they were from, they were white, white Russians. Um, and uh, and uh, Sheila saved us and we won. And we got a watch, I think we got a watch. I got a watch and we I got, got a, a diamond ring. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we go way back, and I read the book um, with great interest. It's going to be, I think, for a very long time, the authoritative book on Je the politics of Japanese defense, um, and uh, will be uh, widely read and influential, and you'll hear uh, why in just a moment. So I'm going to um, ask uh, Sheila a couple questions, and then we'll turn it over to all of you. I, I recognize a number of people in the room who, um, who have uh, deep expertise on this subject, and we look forward to your questions. Um, Sheila, let's start out by asking the, 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 the question, um, uh, you know, I wrote a book 20 years ago called Rearming Japan. This is <laughs> Japan Rearmed. I'm tempted to ask, are they done? <laughs> um, I don't think they are. So uh, this is a book about an evolving uh, uh, view of, of defense policy in Japan. So um, for the audience, um, 
uh, what is the most important thing they should take away from the book, uh, particularly for people who work on policy, on the US-Japan alliance, on Asia? What do they need to process and think about? The title, you're right. They, <laughs> first of all, thank you, Mike, and, and, and John has left the room, but, but um, I'm always delighted to come to CSIS and work with, with colleagues here, but it's a, a particular pleasure to be able to, to talk with you about my book. Um, so when I was writing the book, I had had some time here in Washington. Uh, I had been asked in various different ways what the Japanese military was like, but also how the Japanese made decisions about use of force, how they decided to deploy or not deploy. And so in some ways, this takes me way back to my dissertation, back when we were sitting on Komomo campus trying to figure out the answers to some of those questions. But it also reflects my ability to grapple with some of the decision-making or the, the questions that I got here about Japanese decision-making. I don't think the Japanese are quite finished buying weapons. <laughs> so that's the quick answer. But I wanted to call people's attention to the fact that Japan has invested considerably in military capability for decades. And you know, many of you have read the newspapers and read the newspapers and every new weapons purchase or new politician, especially Mr. Abe, uh, who comes to the fore and the headline is Japan's rearming, Japan's remilitarizing, right? It's this breathless kind of, oh my God, they're coming. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to basically say, just a second, <laughs> Japan has been investing considerably, has had, in fact, uh, one of the top 10 militaries in terms of investments by the Japanese, but also in the Asian context has a pretty lethal military capability, right? The self-defense forces, despite their name and their limited purpose, are one of the most potent militaries in Asia. And so what I wanted to say is the question is not, is Japan rearming? But the question is, how is Japan deciding to use that military capability? How does it incorporate, or not, military capability into its array of instruments of statecraft? And so that the book is largely about the post-Cold War era, because I think, and many of you here know, Japan has had to make new choices since the end of the Cold War. Um, and I wanted to help people understand those choices and where the, where the, the teasing out of the limitations, but also the concerns about Japan's environment perception, how those worked through the decision-making process. So. so when you and I were at Todai, our friends in the self-defense forces commuted to their work in Roppongi out of uniform and then changed. That's now, right. as you describe in your book, the self-defense forces are uh, integrated into Japanese um, diplomacy uh, and intelligence collection analysis and even in the prime minister's office, um, the most respected institution in Japan. So you really chronicle in a very compelling uh, uh, and very readable, I should say, also in a very readable way, this evolution um, um, and how this role has expanded and been accepted by the Japanese people. We'll talk about the constraints, which are considerable, but I wanted to jump to the big question, the hard one to answer, which is will they fight? Hmm. What you've described, the larger role, the broader respect, but um, in a world where the self-defense forces are called on to actually fight, to defend the Senkakus in response to the North Korea challenge or even a Taiwan contingency. Um, you didn't actually answer that question. Mm. <clears throat> um, will they fight? Can they fight? Can they fight with us? Yes, <clears throat> to all, all of the above. But I think, so here's the thing about trying to judge that military capability that Japan has, right? All of our uh, uniformed services, American forces that work alongside the Japanese Self-Defense Force have a very high respect and regard for the Japanese uniform. Uh, leaders and personnel. 
So you, you can hear that from anybody who's here in the room who has worked with the Japanese Self-Defense Forces. They are professional and they work very closely with our forces in the region. Uh, especially, specifically, the Maritime Self-Defense Forces, of course, not only work with our forces, but they work with Indian, they exercise with the Indians in the Malabar exercises, they visit the Philippines and Vietnam. They work also closely these days with the Brits and the French, right, in watching what those North Koreans might be doing in violation <laughs> of UN sanctions. So the Japanese uniform services now have a pretty broad international set of colleagues who can judge their capabilities, um, probably much better than I. But they've never been in combat. They've never had to be in combat. And I think the closest they may have come to combat was the refueling exercise uh, in the Gulf War, right? The more recent Gulf War, not the first one. Um, so that's our, that's our pickle. That's one of the reasons we can't quite answer. But when you say, will they fight? There's two pieces. Will the Japanese political authorities tell them to fight? Which I think 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, we may have had a different answer to. But today, absolutely, absolutely. And one of the chapters of my book talks about readiness and the evolution in Japanese military readiness. And this is partly, as you know, in response to North Korea, whether it was the suspicious ships in the 90s or whether it's the ballistic missiles that go flying over top of Japan, right? So North Korea prompted some defensive actions already, peacetime, deterrent actions, not combat. Um, but you can, you, can t you can see the Air Self-Defense Forces and the Maritime Self-Defense Forces and really getting ready in case something went wrong. Similarly with China, the Japanese Navy in particular, but now their Air Force 24-7 are on high, you know, they're basically reacting to forces in the region much more competent and capable forces in the region, and their readiness is much, much higher. So readiness and then combat, there's a very thin line there. Um, but maritime safety orders have been given by the prime minister to send the maritime self-defense forces out to say, we will defend our waters and our airspace. If you test us, please don't. <laughs> um, so they haven't had to shoot, but they certainly have had to go out to demonstrate Japan's willingness and capability to defend its waters. So I have no doubt that if there is a challenge to Japan, Japanese territorial defense or any kind of attempt that looks hostile, there will be careful calculus of whether and how to respond. But the commanders in the sea and air uh, will respond, and I, I don't have much doubt about that. The question is, how good will they be? <laughs> and again, this is a little premature, and I'm certainly not the best person to try and answer that. And I think that's one of the pieces where colleagues in other countries wearing the uniform who've been worked alongside, operated, and exercised alongside the Japanese are probably the best to answer it. But one of the real critical planning challenges for Japan is in jointness, combined command, can they see the whole operating picture? Do they work with us effectively? Would they work alone effectively in that combat arena? And again, we don't have a test case in which to evaluate, but it is a challenge, I think, for, for military planners going forward to be able to execute that. So you, you um, asked earlier the question, will the politicians, they'll fight, but will the politicians yeah. order them to fight? Or, and I guess implicit in that was also, will they know how to order them how to fight? Mm -hmm. My, guess is, and I think you'd agree, that, that Prime Minister Robert has thought about that a lot yeah. and would be willing to take that political burden. He would, you know, in an American-led scenario, he would want to know. I think earlier prime ministers would rather not have known. Right. So they'd have deniability later. Abe wants to own it. Right. Um, and he's thought a lot about this. There's no doubt about it. But that's one guy. Uh, yep. We don't know how long he'll be prime minister. How do you right. look at the overall Japanese political leadership 
and uh, their views of the self-defense forces and their understanding. Yeah. I mean, they should all read your book, but <laughs> do you think they would be able of leading the GATI yeah. in a democracy with civilian control? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I can only try to answer it by looking backwards, which is what I did in the book. And there's both sides to it. So let's try the conservative kind of liberal mix for just a second. So some people think that, oh, conservatives will be more forthright with, with, with military operations, whereas progressives or liberals will be less. I think what was interesting to me as I was doing the research on this book is that especially in the 2000s, um, you started to see people who then became leaders in the DPJ kind of try to grapple with some of this decision making. And you have a, a pretty fulsome public debate between people like Maihara Seiji, right, and Ishiba Shigeru, um, both you know, hawks in their, their respective fields, but both very knowledgeable about geostrategy and politics. Um, very far, you know, very forward leaning when they're talking about preemptive strike. Can we do it? Can we not? So very deep into this scenario based thinking about the restraints or the lack of restraint. Um, so I write about that in, in the book. But, but you also see evolution over time. And one of the things that was really interesting to me, and for those of you who know Japan, you know it well, but when the DPJ was in power, uh, they did a policy review on the secret agreements between the United States and Japan on the nuclear use of nuclear uh, capability by the United States. And Okada-san Okada was the Minister of Foreign Affairs. He ordered this policy review. Lots of things became in the public domain. If you're a grad student and you want to do this research, it's all now in the public domain, which is making, makes it fascinating. Um, but Okada, at the end of this Okada Katsuya, right, who was perhaps the most restrained about use of force issues, about deploying the military, right? Um, but by the end of the day, he probably said one of the more forward-leaning things I saw any Japanese politician say in the diet, which is, I don't want to bind the hands of any future decision maker about how much and how deeply to integrate Japanese and American military forces, especially when it comes to questions about nuclear use, right? He said, we don't know in the future if some politician, and I'm paraphrasing, it's the, quote, the exact quotes in the book, but we'll have to make that choice to defend Japanese citizens. And I don't want to bind the, 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 those leaders' hands. Very interesting comment from somebody who was seen very much on the liberal side or the reticent side about use of force, and particularly about what they call itaika, right, or integration of US and Japanese military capability. So over time, there's been evolution across different pieces of the political puzzle as well. Fast forward to today and the post-Abe era, I think the, the, the National Security Secretariat is going to stay. The question will be, will, will future political leaders want to use it? That's the new National Security Agency-like structure that has uniformed foreign policy and MOD inside the, the institution to advise the prime minister. It may be that political leaders will want that because they will be able to turn to the experts to help them make the decision instead turning to a political debate right, of the past. So you, you, you'll recall a guy who's doing a PhD a few years ahead of us. Um, he wrote about the Ipasantuaku, the 1% limit. Oh, yes. I forgot his name. And after details and, and huge case studies, he concluded that, and he was right, and this was in the late 80s, that yeah. Japanese defense politics, whenever it moves forward, always has a new break. Yeah. And there yeah. always has to be some hadome, some break. Right. Um, it was somewhat linear mm -hmm. through most of this history because a lot of the break was against Itaika, was against integration in the U.S. It was to protect Japan's autarky and autonomy right. from 
Um, going back to what happened in the Korean War, where Arlie Burke, right. founder of CSIS, created the Maritime Self-Defense Forces to sweep mines for Incheon, and, and people were killed. I yep. mean, they were, that was entrapment in yep. an American military exercise. And so the breaks were very linear in the sense they were designed to prevent that. But now, with the new security legislation, as you point in your book, um, there's much more openness um, for integration. Um, so I guess one thing, it's in your book, but one thing that would help people uh, understand this is, what are the breaks now? What, like, how do we, what does pacifism mean in Japan? Is there anti-militarism? Some people, like our friend Tom Berger, don't use pacifism, they use anti-militarism. And what about the break on ITICON, integration with the US, which it seems to me is the break that was uh, weakened or, or removed with the security legislation. Not the breaks on anti-militarism, but the breaks on integration. But how do you see that, the breaks, plural The breaks, now? yeah. Um, so Hadome breaks is B-R-A-K-E-S, not B-R-E-A-K-S. Right, right. <laughs> the idea that you're going to stop um, the Japanese from moving too much in the direction of integration with us. I think... Um, so what I chronicle in the book is over time. So it starts out with weapon repurchases, and you have these fantastic, very colorful Japanese political debates about you have to take the bombing, you know, the bombing sites out of aircraft, and you have to do all kinds of stuff. Now there is no technical <coughs> limitation or adaptation to the capabilities that the Japanese military has. So there's people here who help make those aircraft, and I won't single anybody out, but but. Really, today, all of the technology that Japan has is available to Japan um, is in those aircraft and ships and everything else. So the technological break is gone now. Um, the other break was, as you pointed out, in, in missions, right? It was largely, you know, we can't go over there, and we can't go over there, and we can't do this with you. We can only do Defense of Japan kind of planning. Those are gone. So we went from Defense of Japan planning between the United States and Japanese forces to areas surrounding Japan to pretty much an open. Um, set of missions now, and the, especially that 2014 redefinition or reinterpretation of the Constitution opened up so much more latitude for the self-defense forces to operate, again, not just with us, but with others. I think the break that's obvious to me still is on the actual use of force. And so you, you have three conditions under which the self-defense forces are allowed to use force. Let me see if I can remember them. <laughs> um, the first is if, Jap if Japan is threatened. So it has to be an imminent threat to Japan. That's been relaxed just a little bit with the, the operations they do with us and also in the UN peacekeeping. Um, the other is that there's no other instrument available. In other words, they can't solve the problem unless they use, use force, right? And then the, the last one is that they must use the minimal, minimal level of force necessary, right? So the second two to me are the ones, you know, the imminent attack on Japan, Japan now operates broadly. And I think there's an implicit understanding that Japanese security must not, explicit understanding, I should say, not implicit, explicit understanding that Japan's security does have to be threatened, but not in Japanese territory anymore, so that's expanded. Um, other means are not necessary. Well, nobody's double get, nobody's second guessing whether or not a ballistic missile. Right. There's a different way to deal with a ballistic. It's strongly missile. worded. We're going to wait for the we're strongly worded demo. Protest, <laughs> right? Yeah. So now we're talking about real forces, real capabilities deployed in and near and over Japan. So we're not even talking about that anymore, right? And then the final one is this question of in actual combat or operations, Japan, the self-defense forces are only allowed to use the minimal level of force necessary. That's one I think we don't know yet. 
how much relaxation there's been in that understanding. When I talk to senior self-defense force operators who've been on commanders of ships and fighter pilots and things like that, they will tell me that that's still in operation, mm. that they don't feel that they have complete authority to use a maximum level of force, yeah. right? So I suspect that latter piece is where Japan still remains somewhat hesitant. The other, but, uh, the other break may be uh, something that was not a break in the late 80s, which is budget. Yeah. And that's not on operations right. or the questions of rules of engagement, but just how much weaponry you can afford to buy. Right. You, you make a few references in the book very, very um, artfully um, uh, camouflaged <laughs> about the uncertainty caused by our current president's um, uh, like of uh, being unpredictable. Um, um, I don't know how you could have in a book mm. addressed that because it's such a moving target. Right. Um, but let me ask you, I mean, he, the president has reportedly said, I want allies like Japan. He's included Japan to pay 100% of costs plus 50%. Um, he's, you know, as a candidate, he said he didn't care if Japan went nuclear. Of course, as president, he's been, been quite a bit different. He spent more time with Shinzo Abe than any other world leader. And if you look at, you know, Abe's um, diplomacy with Iran, he's actually given yeah. Prime Minister Abe the kind of um, latitude in foreign policy no American president has ever yeah. <laughs> since, uh, since 1945. So uh, it's a very mixed picture, but you do reference the general unpredictability of the U.S., the uncertainty. Right. Um, where do you see that going? Is, uh, is Japan hedging? Uh, what would you look for as evidence Japan's hedging? We just described a Japan that's more dependent on the U.S., more joint and interoperable. Um, uh, but then you raise this you know, uncertainty about U.S. staying power and tensions. Mm -hmm predictability, not just because of the president. What, what does that look like? And what, what, would, what would really make you worried? Uh, so, so there's a lot in that question. Let yeah. me try and do a couple pieces of it. So there's a chapter in the book called um, Relying on Borrowed Power, which is sort of an allies look at the reliability of the United States mm -hmm. as, a, as a partner. Um, and traditionally in Japan, and it's other allies as well, the presence of US forces has been a political challenge, right? The bases, the forces themselves, their behavior. And Japan has had its share, especially in Okinawa, right? Of pressures between citizens and US military. So that tension between making sure the Japanese people are comfortable with the alliance and how it's implemented and thinking about strategic needs and defenses and how forces will be deployed, that's been a large part of the Japanese political um, thinking for some time and continues today. I mean, we can talk more about Okinawa later if you'd like, but, um, but that, I think those kinds, if you look at the opinion polls in Japan, those kinds of restraints or those kinds of hesitancies in Japanese public opinion especially are, are much, much weaker now. Now you see much more reflected in public opinion concern about Japan's neighborhood, concern about defense, those kinds of things. So the alliance doesn't have some of the weaknesses inside the Japanese public debate as it had in the past, right? This sort of temerity about how far and how fast um, we should go. Um, but, but today, I think, you know, the, the book is not about President Trump. So if you want a book about President Trump, this is not the book for you. <laughs> um, however, at the end of the book, I had to actually write about looking ahead. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of interesting to look ahead these days or try. Um, the, earlier in the experience, though, every, well, everybody thinks that President Trump is raising this fear of abandonment, right? Oh my gosh, the alliance may go away. But I would argue that actually came earlier, that came with the Senkaku dispute with China, that for the first time, Japanese planners had to think seriously. Which is 20-some years ago. Yes. Um, they had to think seriously about if it involves a war with China, will America still come 
and be on our side. And I think that's a serious dilemma. Uh, it continues to be. It's why not only President Obama made the statement in Tokyo, right, that yes, we will be there. Article 5 pertains to Senkaku's, but also, if you didn't see it, it was in that very first joint statement between Trump and Abe, when Prime Minister Abe first came in 20, 2017 to see the president. That, that will be a fixture in every joint statement, every president going forward. Um, so the abandonment thing is more about structure of the region than it is about President Trump, mm -hmm. right? But let's get to President Trump. <clears throat> um, unpredictable, sure. Um, unmanageable, no. And you know, you and I have had many, many conversations with people in the, the Japanese government who may not think he's always manageable, but that Prime Minister Abe and the president have a pretty good handle on the relationship, and um, you know, this will be manageable. When you start saying, "Okay, what if Bernie Sanders comes in 2020, or Elizabeth Warren, or in, in, any political leader?" And I think the bottom line is yes. I think anybody who leads Japan because of the importance of the, of the alliance, will want to manage whoever the political leader is here in Washington. How successful they'll be depends on how that goes, right? I mean, that's a political art, not a, not a strategic art. But at the end of the day, I think for all the threat perception of China, for all the threat perception of North Korea, Japan has doubled down on the alliance. It has not hedged and sought other partners. Some people like to read its relationship with India or Australia or other partners in the region as potentially a hedge. I don't read it that way. I see it as just another manifestation of doubling down and embedding Japan in a US-led network of alliances in the region to make sure that there's a collective response should there be a challenge from China, uh, that in the United Nations there will be a collective response to the proliferation in North Korea. So Japan is working hard but not hedging. Yeah. I think Japan is, there isn't another option that provides a similar level of security for Japan. And barring a severe failure of the alliance, a clear, obvious failure of the US-Japan alliance to defend Japanese security interests, I, I think this is the strategy the Japanese will continue to take. Let me, last question, then I want to open it up to the audience. Um, this was your dissertation topic in a way, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you could travel back in time to oh. Sheila at Tokyo University Komaba campus, <laughs> or the PhD Kenkyukai at I House, or all oh, those other fun, yeah. fun times we all had, um, and, 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 and tell the Sheila then what you said here, <laughs> do you think you would have been surprised? Oh my goodness, I would have fallen over, yes. Yes, because I, I'll be very honest, and there's young people in the room who are going to go on to write their own PhD dissertations. Um, you know, we were there just before the first Gulf War, right? Nah. Not to date ourselves too much. But, um, and if, if I had left and Jerry Curtis said, come home, come home and write your dissertation, don't stay in Japan so long, I stayed. Um, <laughs> didn't listen to my advisor. But had I gone home six months earlier, I would have said, Japanese will never send their self-defense forces abroad. Never, never. Six months later, oops, <laughs> recalculating, right? Because that first Gulf War was the first real diplomatic setback for Japan for not allowing its military to behave, to participate in that coalition, right? You wrote about this many and, and others have as well. There's been a lot of changes. And so when people start saying the Japanese will never do this, never do that, I was go, wait a minute, <laughs> wait so a minute. So you were surprised, I mean, I you was, would have been surprised. I would have been surprised. And yeah. all of these changes, of course, I never thought that threat perception didn't matter to Japanese security planners. So I am, I am a little bit more of a realist in that way. 
Um, I thought it mattered. I thought a lot of the domestic constraints that Tom Berger and others write about were, would, would continue to be strong. But I have watched those, those perceptions shift, public opinion shift. And I've watched the civil-military balance also shift. So there's a lot more confidence mm. in that civilian-military relationship today in Japan at senior levels, but also in the public than there was when we were there. So I, yes, I would have been very surprised back then. It's funny, I, my PhD predicted, predicted exactly what would happen. I, <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> just kidding. Um, no, the, one of the, 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 the great values of this book is you, you read a, a book on a contemporary policy issue and nine times out of 10, it's somebody who's spent a year of research. She'll have spent, yeah. this is in some ways uh, magnus opus. This, is, this reflects deep, deep um, understanding of the theory and the specific developments and the personalities. Um, and, this, and, I, and, and it's written in a historical mindset with the evolution of these things, but not just, uh, I'm trying to make us both sound really old, but based <laughs> on okay. somebody who was there and saw these and knew the people involved. Yeah. So it really, uh, it really comes through. It helps you distill this in, into, a, into a very clear picture of where we came from and gives a clearer sense of where we're, where we're probably going. And I have to say for the US, it's a good thing. Mm. <laughs> It's a good thing. Um, why don't I open it up um, for some questions uh, for Sheila about the book, uh, which I, uh, looking for my staff, which I understand will be available um, afterwards. Um, so do we have microphones? Yeah, great. Yes, sir. This is where CSIS has, young, younger people have so, to jog. <laughs> I'm not going to embarrass you too much, but 20 years ago, GA time officer with, in uniform would never have asked a question. Exactly. So this is, you're, First out of the you're, box you're, is you're amazing. You're proving her, her yes. argument. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Um, as you know, I'm, I'm from the Japan Grand Safety Defense Force, and um, uh, thank you for your great book. It was very interesting. Um, in, in that book, you argue that the Japan Maritime Safety Defense Force and Air Safety Defense Force greatly contributed to the Japan-US alliance or Japan's defense so after, uh, after the Cold War. But so my question is, so what role had the Ground Safety Defense Force played? <laughs> or, and, and will the Ground Safety Defense Force play in the future? I knew halfway through that question that I was in trouble. Um, <laughs> So you'll notice in a different chapter, I spend a lot of time talking about the ground self-defense forces and your role abroad, right? So it's not that I don't, I leave out Japan's ground self-defense force. Um, but you know, the interesting thing for me, and you, you, I don't, if you've read the book, then you know I've spent a lot of time with um, some of your leaders who have been trying to work on the jointness piece. And especially down in the southwestern wall, right? That strategy, well, southwestern wall is what General Bansho used, the terminology he used. But now that Japan's front line in some ways is the southwest, the ground self-defense force has adapted itself very quickly to what role it can play to make sure that it is, it is deeply integrated in thinking with the maritime self-defense force as well as the air self-defense force. So the ground self-defense force today it's not sitting up on Hokkaido anymore, waiting for those Soviets to arrive. It is deeply thinking about its flexible response and its joint right, response. You will have, I think, probably one of the most critical pieces of the puzzle going forward, very expensive piece of the puzzle in Japanese ballistic missile defenses, as you know, uh, when the Aegis Ashore system is purchased. Um, there'll be a lot of training of your, maybe you, yourself, I don't know. Um, but that will have to be deeply integrated, of course, with Japan's larger air defenses and ballistic missile defenses. So there is a, a new piece of the puzzle, both in terms of technical expertise, but also ownership of the ballistic missile defense 
uh, mission that's going to be part of the Ground Self-Defense Force. The, can I say one thing yeah, about the Ground Self-Defense Force is that a, a lot of Americans, most Japanese understand this, but a lot of people outside the country don't, is when you looked at the Self-Defense Forces in the post-war decades in Japan, the first service you thought about was the Ground Self-Defense Force because that was the service that was going to come if there was a disaster. That was the service that was going to rescue you from mudslides and earthquakes and any kind of natural disaster. The Ground Self-Defense Forces were the first responders in 2011 uh, to the Great East Japan earthquake. And if you look at the opinion polls today of the Japanese public's response to the Self-Defense Force, they are the highest at least they, they were, maybe not today, but they were at the very top of the people or the institution that the Japanese public trusts. And that's a huge change for Japan. So your mission, I may not have talked about your mission in the specific way that you're asking the question, but it's important for the audience to understand that the service that most interacted with the Japanese public and therefore most, was most influential in changing the minds of generations of Japanese about the utility of their military was the ground self-defense force. Is that satisfactory or? <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. Up front? Oh. Up, right, right up in the front, in the very, very front, except not us, just, yeah. Right this here. gentleman no, keep right coming, here. Keep coming, sorry to go. Ellen, come on up. The, the one with her hand up, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, as I've discussed with both of you before, um, I'm a student of both of them. Um, I'm more interested in the demographic aspect of the future of the U.S.-Japan alliance. Um, you mentioned in the very end of your book you know, that Japan should possibly consider changing some of its strategies to become more engaged and more proactive in dealing with perhaps a wary uh, U.S. partner. But uh, one of the problems that I still am trying to grapple with are the demographic changes, the mass population shrinkage, the, uh, the lack of possible new recruits for the JMSDF, the JCSDF. So, oh wow, that's a big change. Um, what do you think uh, are possible solutions going forward uh, for Japan's security uh, dilemmas um, when it comes to compensating for that demographic change? Great question. Tracking the demographics, so I don't have a, a very sort of survey-rich answer to your question. But what I will say is the Japanese self-defense forces have had a hard time, even before today, when we're very aware of the demographic trajectory for Japan, which is not good, right? But they've had a very hard time fully staffing their military, right? So they are not up to par. I mean, they're not up to their full number of 120,000. They do have reserves now, so people who were in the self-defense forces continue to serve in the reserves. Um, but that's, a, that's been a struggle for the self-defense forces all the way through. But like any society, they are as vulnerable right, to these kinds of larger, broader demographics than, 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 than if, as they're as vulnerable as everybody else, is what I was trying to say there. I think what the, when you look and talk to the MOD right, about how they are going to handle the demographic shift, they'll give you a couple of answers. Well, recruitment's always been hard. We'll just have to try harder. <laughs> there's been a little bit of a political bubble around that recruitment <laughs> piece lately. Um, but there's also this question of technology. 
the, the Ministry of Defense is looking at it just like the rest of Japanese society at AI, at robotics, right? Especially unmanned vehicles, both submerged and in the air. Um, so there'll be a, technology is not going to cure the Japanese of this demographic challenge to their military, but it'll certainly be one of the ways in which they try to mitigate it. Good, yeah, up in the front again. Since you're not our student, we'll give you a mic that works. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, it's working. Uh, thank you for coming, and thank you for writing the book. I appreciate it. We'd like it to have people like that, you know, and, and Mike just as well. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, uh, Reagan Foundation. Uh, I've been away from Japan for many years now, about 45, 50 years, so. You probably know better than I do. Uh, but I am an old school, okay? Uh, you see, if, if, if a country cannot defend herself by herself, I mean without America, then it's not a country. So that, that's what I believe, okay? So, but then I've been away from Japan for many years. Uh, so I ask myself a question. Can she defend herself? The answer is no, because of China, because of Soviet, and so forth. Uh, so my question, oh, my question is, it's better. Uh, Japan is still spending a 1% of GDP for the military. So my question, obviously, is, is, is it good enough? Uh, I mean, I think of balance of power in the Asia-Pacific all the time, every day, all week, and I'm referring to China. So uh, Japan is taking the back seat. It's been taken that way about 70 years. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so that's, that's where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, right. uh, uh, and you probably don't agree with me, which is okay. We, we, <laughs> We agree to disagree, right? Not yet. I haven't yeah, Not yet. Okay. So anyway, that's my question. Thank I, you. I, I thank you. So should thank Japan you. be paying 2% like we're asking NATO? <laughs> I can just see all our friends in Tokyo falling over backwards, <laughs> going, don't say that. Um, so it's interesting, the burden sharing debate, let's start at that and then I'll, I'll get to your question about doing it by themselves. But um, the NATO burden sharing debate has always been about percentage of GDP, right? And that goes all the way back to Senator Mike Mansfield, right, it, who basically said, you gotta, Europe, you gotta do more, you gotta protect yourself. So we've always talked in terms of our NATO allies, America's NATO allies is you know 2%, 3% GD, of GDP on defenses. Very few of them have gotten there, but, but that's the way we talk about it. In Asia, for both South Korea and for Japan, we don't ask for certain percentages of GDP. We talk about host nation support. And of course, Japan was the, the first country to come under that magnifying glass by our Congress in the 80s because it rose to economic prominence. South Korea came much later where we put that kind of pressure on South Korea. Um, but the, the self-reliance question that's at the heart, you know, the, that point that's at the heart of your question, you know, we had Nakasone way back when, right, talk about Jishu Boy in 1970, Jishu Boy being autonomous defense. Um, but, uh, Prime Minister Abe today talks about self-reliance of the Japanese within both of them conservatives, both of them very supportive of greater military spending by Japan, both of them thinking about it in the context of the alliance. 
not independent of the US-Japan alliance. So the, 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 the problem I have with going it alone, and I, I notice we have, this, we have a different position here in the United States, but it, after World War II, very few countries went it alone. Right? In, the, in the pure sense that we were in the nuclear era by the time we came out of World War II. Going it alone certainly meant that you had to have a serious conversation about nuclear capability. Were you willing, right? And our European allies had in various countries very different ideas. As you know, de Gaulle wanted the force to frap, not because it was gonna defend France, but it would give France options, right? It's a minimal deterrent, but it allowed for autonomy within the alliance, within that NATO, with that NATO structure. Japan, you know, over the years, I may be preempting your nuclear question, but Japan <laughs> over the years has gone back and taken, the government has gone back and taken a look at that choice about not acquiring nuclear weapons. Because in each case over the years, right, they were presented by some, you know, the Chinese got the, got the bomb, right? The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was, you know, pending uh, the end of the Cold War. And every time they came back, the military was basically saying to them, a nuclear option for Japan doesn't make sense because we don't have strategic depth. So the hardened core kind of security planners didn't see that as a viable option. Now the political part of your question is I think more important for you, if, if I'm reading your question correctly, is that right? Um, I'm not sure that Japanese leaders, and, and Mike knows Mr. Abe far better than I do, but I'm not sure that Japanese leaders feel that outside the alliance they would have greater security or outside the alliance, they would have greater independence. So again, that's a, there's two pieces to the answer to your question of the, do they go it alone or not? One is militarily, what do you get for it? The second is politically, does it give you more options? To date, and President Trump may, may, may you know, put this to a, a fine point here, we're not sure yet, um, but to date, nobody's been really ready to say an independent a militarily independent Japan would have more options, right? And part of the confidence in that uh, may come from, that, from the fact that we are more dependent on Japan yep. for our security. Yep. And so um, there are more ways to leverage the U.S. Right. where the U.S. needs you more. The hands all went up uh, here. Uh, I yeah, you've, you've done it now. <laughs> all of a yeah, sudden. Please. Uh, uh, well, actually, uh, we'll do the front, and then I'll get you next. So come to the front, uh, and we'll get this gentleman, and, mm. and we'll have time for you sure. next. <laughs> Hello. Uh, how does the political and military leadership differentiate between the China risk and the North Korea risk? Is there consistency or their view on that? And how do they believe they need to react to these two neighbors? Thank you. It's a great question. I address this somewhat in the book in a slightly different way. Um, but Korea or the Korean Peninsula has been the driver of Japanese security planning for the entire post-war period. And even back to when Mike was talking about earlier about the Korean War, the Japanese sent minesweepers to the Korean War. So it has been the contingency, the flashpoint of East Asia most likely to affect Japan because it was the place most likely where there could be a war. <laughs> and the spillover effects would affect Japanese security. Um, today, so the rise of China comes later. I deal with that a little bit in the other book. But in this book, I talk specifically about Japan-China clashing in the mid-2010s. Um, today, the, the long-term challenge for Japan is China. 
for all of the reasons, demography, independence, right? Um, the fear of abandonment by the United States, all those reasons, China will be more powerful, more, more than likely. I'm not a great believer in linear calculations, but it's a large country, it's populous, it's doing well, reasonably well economically. Japan has, would have a difficult time competing with China. So that's the long-term strategic challenge for Japan, is how to manage that China especially a China that decides it wants to be more assertive in the way it uses its military power, which is the inklings that we're getting <laughs> of this emerging China. North Korea is a proliferation risk, and that lays bare militarily the fact that Japan doesn't have either retaliatory capability or just plain old offensive strike. <laughs> right? There's the deterrent there that Japan may or may not want on its own, not ours, but theirs. Um, that's the challenge for North Korea. And I think what worries a lot of p people in Tokyo, and if others have a different impression here, I'd love to hear it, but is, is the United States going to openly accept North Korea as a nuclear state and decide, hmm, we can deter it, that's okay. I mean, the Japanese would be horrified, I think, if that's what we did. So the North Koreans pose a slightly different challenge, and it's our alliance also is invoked in different ways because of the nuclear threat from North Korea. If you can take Kim Jong-un as a rogue state, it gets more complicated than that. But I, I think that's, that, that's how I would differentiate between the two in terms of the way in which Japanese planners look at the two different countries on their, on their, in their neighborhood. Yes. Um, hello. Um, so we were talking about a 2% discussion and more spending discussion. Um, and I'm from Germany, so I'm especially interested in yeah. this issue. And especially on, you mentioned that there is, has been in the past in the US been a different understanding um, between the, for example, Germany as a NATO ally and Japan and their responsibility to burden share um, with the United States. Um, I, where does it come from and how does this, do you think this will develop in the future, especially uh, under Trump, because he has also been critical um, of Japan on this issue, so how will this change? Mm -hmm. So the difference in burden sharing approaches, is that, am I, that's what you'd like to understand? Why that's, if that's going to change or not? I, you know, the, the interesting thing for me is watch, so none of our alliances have come to an end over a burden sharing conversation. I think that's important for us today here in Washington particularly to remember, right? We've, we've been talking about burden sharing with our allies every, all the way back, right? Um, it creates some really messy politics. It's also usually driven by our Congress less than by our executive branch. Not exclusively, but it's usually been congress congressional members, including Senator Mansfield back in the 60s, right? Who said, enough, you know, we're spending all this money on our military. You guys need to do more, carry more of the weight. Um, today, it's our president who's saying it, first of all, which I think is a little jarring. Second of all, it is, it, it is intimately linked with his position on trade. So as he describes allies as taking advantage of the United States, President Trump first starts to talk about trade and markets and market access and things like that. But he then links it to the same kind of debate over burden sharing, right? Um, and I think what was interesting to me in November of 2017 is a public statement by President Trump in Tokyo when he first went out on that Asia tour. Uh, he said, buy more aircraft, buy more weapons from us. He was directly speaking to Prime Minister Abe in public in front of the press. Um, buy more weapons so you can reduce the deficit. 
Most of our presidents would say, buy more weapons. <laughs> we need to be a stronger ally <laughs> alliance, right? I mean, they wouldn't be that bald about the trade-off, right? Um, so that's new. Um, as we came out of last year and watched the Japanese invest in 105 F-35s, is that the right number? Um, you kind of think it seems to have worked. Right? Um, so there's different ways the president seems to be you know, putting pressure on each of our allies. In, in your country, of course, there's a lot of um, tension, right, with your chancellor in particular, the trade, both the trade and the defense side of things. Um, I think the NATO conversation for me with President Trump was very interesting when Macron tried to say, and your chancellor earlier said, we Europeans have to think more about our own defenses ourselves, right? Rather than relying on this external power. Macron said it's not inconceivable that France's nuclear deterrent could be shared with the rest of Europe. For those of us who went to grad school just a little while ago, that was like, what? <laughs> that was a what? <laughs> now, I don't know that they mean that. Do they really want to decouple? Because that is a decoupling kind of, is that a decoupling conversation we're hearing? Or is it a response to the president's invitation for greater burden sharing? I don't know. You guys probably can tell us more than I can tell you about the politics of that in Europe. But we are in a different era, I think. I do think that the more Americans these days, at least they are when I go out to different parts of the United States to talk about Japan or Asia, they're far more likely to ask me, why do we still need to have bases there? Where? To be in right? Asia. In Asia. Right. Why do we need, whether it's Korea mm -hmm. or Japan, why do we still need to be there? Um, and it's not, it's, not, it's not taken for granted in some ways the way it used to be. So I think it's incumbent on people like us sitting here to be able to talk about the logic of our alliances, the logic of why it matters, not to South Korea and Japan or Germany, right? Why it matters to us. In public opinion polls in the U.S., Chicago Council and others, mm -hmm. though, the U.S.-Japan alliance polls 20 points or more above NATO. Mm -hmm. um, when Americans are asked, what country do you trust? Uh, it's uh, Chicago Council polls. <clears throat> it's been Britain, Canada, and then Japan and Germany. And, and recently, Germany's been a little bit higher. Um, I think in the next poll, Japan's going to get into third place ahead of Germany because of all the friction that Sheila described. Part of that is that Prime Minister Abe has decided they're the only Americans we have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he wants, is it, he wants to manage this president and make it work. <clears throat> I think European leaders have taken a somewhat different tack. There's that photo you've probably all seen of the G7 meeting, mm -hmm. when Donald Trump is sitting on the ch chair, crossing his arms, and Macron, uh, Merkel, uh, May, are all leaning over him. He's, and he's, got, he's, he's got this look like my eight-year-old son, I'm not gonna eat my broccoli. Um, and in between them is Prime Minister Abe and Nishimura Yasutoshi, the Deputy Chief Cabinet Secretary, who are looking very worried and trying to find a way to bridge this, yeah. and um, frankly, uh, I hope they succeed because mm -hmm. on everything from climate to the role of the G7 um, to the China problem, uh, uh, Japan has a better relationship with Europe than we do right now, yeah. and uh, I think um, the credibility in Washington to actually play that, that kind of role. Yeah. Um, so um, there's so many issues we can address, and we still can in a way because we have some refreshments <clears throat> and books 
um, which are you willing to sign them? Absolutely. Um, and uh, and uh, we have time to do that, but I want to leave time so that people can get the book and ask questions and uh, and join Sheila and her son, uh, Ian, back from um, Minnesota and uh, at McAllister College. Um, uh, and uh, talk more about this in a sort of uh, more casual way over whatever we have out there, I think wine and cheese. Um, but before that, please join me in thanking Sheila and congratulating Thank her you. on this wonderful Thank book. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.